Hello and welcome to this, the 37th episode of the Rise Productions Irish Theatre Podcast. I am your host, the self-appointed cheerleader-in-chief of Irish Theatre, Ingus Og McAnally, artistic director of Rise Productions, a freelance actor, more recently a director and a producer here at Rise. I'm a 15-year veteran of the Irish theatre scene and a third-generation theatre maker. And as ever, we are coming to you live from our studios at the Irish Theatre Institute in the heart of Dublin's cultural quarter of Temple Bar. And it's been another very interesting week. Uh, a few things coming to a close. Obviously we had our final night in the Abbey with Tom Murphy's The House on Saturday evening, which was a really wonderful culmination of uh, of so many great elements of a show that had gone on for the last couple of months, I guess, if you take in all the rehearsal process. And it was just such a wonderful send-off to such a great show. Um, I know certainly the whole team had such a ball on that. We really had a great time and it was wonderful. Very sad to see it go, um, but it was a really special time and I think it's one that we'll all look back on quite fondly for many, many years to come. And hopefully, if you've got a chance to see it, we've given you something to take with you for uh, for to look back on over the years. Um, and also, yesterday, just finished um, shooting on the 1916 thing that I'd been doing over the last little while. We wrapped yesterday evening um, with me getting shot in Kilmainham, which was a very strange thing. I mean, you find yourself back in the actual place, in the actual spot where these guys were executed, and uh, there's a certain potency to that, just standing there in that Stonebreaker's yard in Kilmainham Jail. Uh, in full costume with your hands tied behind your back and uh, and a full firing squad facing you down. It's uh, strange things go on inside you when you do that. There's uh, very little acting involved, very little acting required. It's it's a real potent thing and uh, and it was lovely to do. A very nice experience on shooting that thing and, and delighted that we all wrapped up uh, yesterday evening. So uh, it means that mercifully some of the madness of the last couple of months has eased off a little bit. But... As ever, I'm not going to rest on my laurels. I'm going to get straight back into things. And so it is time for these announcements that we suggested we might be bringing to you this week. And so the big news is that Fight Night is coming back for some domestic touring this year, uh, which we hadn't really been expecting. But with the way the cards have fallen, we've been able to make it happen. And we're absolutely delighted to have been able to make it happen. We're delighted to bring it back uh, to a few places where we haven't brought it before. Um, and now, obviously, after the huge success of the Glasgow run earlier this year, where Mike Sheen did such a phenomenal job and got such an amazing response to his performance over there, we're bringing it back. Now, unfortunately, Mike is unable to... Uh, to resume the role of Dan Coyle Jr. because he is uh, he is busy getting ready to go into the Abbey for their festival show. Uh, it means we have had to recast again. And so stepping back into the role of Dan Coyle Jr. is none other than yours truly, Angus Og McAnally, which I am simultaneously delighted and terrified about. I, it's uh, It's been an amazing journey for me with this show from the very beginning all those years ago. And I'm delighted to be, you know, pulling on the gloves one more time. I'm also a little bit terrified because as any of you who saw either The House or saw any of the stills that, uh, from the 1916 thing that ended up on the front page of the Times this week, you'll have noticed that uh, both the characters of Michael O'Hanrahan and indeed of Jimmy Tobin in the house were a little bit heavier than Dan Coyle Jr. was last time Fight Night came out. So I have a job of work to do in terms of getting back into the uh, the rigorous boxing training over the next couple of weeks before we kick off. But uh, that's a challenge I'm up for. I'm, uh, I'm ready for it and it's something that'll keep the wife happy anyway because I'll be looking slim and trim again in no time. So um, yeah, we've got some exciting dates coming up. We will be playing the Owen Reed Festival in Kilkenny on Saturday August the 
4th, um, which is shaping up to be a lovely little festival down in Callum there in Kilkenny, um, with our good friends Devious Theatre there also uh, performing one of their shows at the same time. Uh, we'll then be going the following day down to West Cork to the Lizard Festival, um, and we'll play there Sunday, August 5th. And that looks like an amazing festival with um, a huge amount of music and food and literary tents and all this kind of stuff. Like, you know, musically, you've got people like Lisa Hannigan playing and Sheik, all these kind of huge big bands. And then in the theatre tent or the literary tent, uh, a, a whole lineup of great stuff. Um, Mimic from Ray Scannell will be playing there as well, as well as ourselves, obviously. And uh, and Paul Howard will be reading from his latest book. So that's uh, a super lineup there. And then the following weekend, we will be heading to the Gap Festival in Wexford. That's in Ballythomas, uh, up in North Wexford. Um, and we're going to be doing two performances of Fight Night there on the 10th and the 11th. So it's nice to be doing uh, a little bit more domestically and taking it to a few towns that we hadn't taken it to before. It'll be our first trip down to Cork, would you believe? Um, it's We've yet to play Rebel County with Fight Night, so we're delighted to be getting down there for this. And uh, it's a big, happy adventure that I'm looking forward to. So, as ever, we are bringing this to you absolutely free of charge. We promise that we'll never, ever charge for these interviews. But, as ever, we are looking for you to go and put your money into Irish theatre. The whole ethos behind this podcast is to support, promote and celebrate all that is great about Irish theatre. And, as you now know, after 37 episodes, the easiest way to go and do that is to go and buy yourself some tickets to a theatre show near you soon. If maybe you feel that theatre tickets might be slightly outside your price range this week or this month, go on over to one of the crowdsourcing websites like Fundit.ie, which always have a huge amount of projects on over there, and particularly with the launch of the Fringe Festival this week, um, there'll be a huge amount of theatre companies running campaigns over there. So head on over to Fundit.ie. Donations there start from as low as a 5 and there are always great rewards in return for those donations so you can feel that you're part of making all this great Irish theatre and of course there's always loads of ways you can support without putting your hand in your pocket go and tell people about this podcast whether that's in person over a cup of coffee by sharing the link as a Facebook post or just retweeting the link on Twitter do go over and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes that helps us in our chart position over there and go back and listen to all the other episodes we've put out and if at all possible go and leave us a review on iTunes or just simply click to rate us on their five-star rating system. Can't overemphasize how important that is in terms of the chart position for us. And as ever, the higher the chart position we have, the higher the profile we have, which means we can help then bring a higher profile to the people that we're interviewing here and help spread the word about Irish theatre. You can, of course, as ever, follow us on Facebook. We are facebook.com forward slash Rise Productions Ireland or follow us on Twitter. We are at Rise Ireland. And so that brings us to this week's guest. And this is a lovely one for me because he's a very dear friend who is making amazing things happen for himself over in California, in Los Angeles. And it's the brilliant Alan Smith. Alan is a guy who had done such a huge amount of work here before he finally uh, jetted over to the States, um, had this amazing body of work behind him and, and kind of felt, right, okay, it's time to go and make the move. And whereas you hear of an awful lot of actors either heading to New York or to LA or, you know, more particularly to London, and you kind of feel, you know, for the gang of us left behind here, go, God, it must be going great, they're over in London. And, you know, a lot of times you can find people going over there and really the work isn't happening for them that much. But with Smithy, it's it's a totally different kettle of fish. He's a guy who's gone over there and it's really happening for him. He's really making things happen over there, getting big, high-profile TV gigs and film work. Uh, and I'm absolutely delighted for him. He, you know, it really couldn't happen to a nicer guy. He's a superstar. I love him to bits. We're going to get straight into it. Here it is. The wonderful Alan Smith. The wonderful Alan Smith, live and direct via satellite from the City of Angels, Los Angeles, LA, California. How the hell are you, man? I am delightful, Ingo. How are you? I'm bleeding deadly, and I'm all the better for talking to you. This is a really um, happy one for me. I feel very showbiz already. 
Oh my gosh, I sort of feel like I'm back in Ireland uh, listening to the radio and listening to your dulcet tones selling me every possible product going. Look, I've got kids to put through college, Smithy. It is what it is. I've got a, I, <laughs> I got a family to feed. I'm on, the, I'm on the same page as you with that, so it's all good. <laughs> so. Okay, let us do, as we do every week, get back to the very beginning uh, yeah. and talk about how it occurred to you to get into the business in the first place. Where did that first spark come from? God, it's, it's so funny to hear because I'm such a, I think I've listened to almost all of these podcasts and I hear you ask that question and I was thinking about it because we've talked about trying to do this before and uh, I can think of no sort of logical reason why I get into it um, other than being, I think, a fan of like telly and films as a kid and uh, it was always... Like, I was such a huge fan of, like, you know, Star Wars and the Raiders movies. And just, I mean, that was the thing that I, as a kid, that was my sort of, my go-to. My, uh, um, you know, that was my way of just, that's, that was my favorite thing to do. So, like, I, I sort of remember, like, when the Temple of Doom came out, the second uh, Indi- Indiana Jones movie, I went to see it. I saved and saved, because at that time you knew, like, six it was open in America, so six months later it was going to come out. So I had time to save money. And I saved money, and I went like 13 nights in a row to see that one movie. Holy uh, Jesus. Yeah, at the Casino Cinema in Dundalk. And, um, Where dreams come true. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. And uh, yeah, not only do you get to see a great movie, you get to see it at the Casino, which was part of the old shopping centre in Dundalk. But, uh, but yeah, so like I was just always into it and always sort of when I played games I think I always I wanted to play Star Wars or I wanted to and I wanted to be certain characters and stuff like that I mean on the schoolyard and I think I mean I think every kid uh, does that but because I was I was quite a, like I was like a uh, I was no other way of putting it. I was a very fat child and so okay. I, I was never interested in sports or never really played and so but I but I was totally into into the movies and stuff like that. And I used to, like, oh, my God. Yeah, I used, I used to write to uh, I used to write to Jim will fix it all the time to, uh, because I wanted to be on television or I wanted to be in, in, in films and stuff like that. So it was always sort of like there in terms of like with no in any way sort of realization or, or practical understanding as to what it is. I just wanted to do it. I liked watching the telly and I sort of imagined myself doing it or something um, and so so I don't know where it I don't know where it came from other than being just influenced and enjoying being a fan of of of, uh, of, of just of films you well, know I remember that being a big thing for me because it was you know when you're a kid growing up you know you want to be a cop or you want to be a fireman or you want to be a pro wrestler or you want to do you know and then suddenly you go well if I'm an actor I can be all of those things you, at different times I think that's exactly what it is because it's like you can travel space or you can be chasing somebody in a cop car or you can be hanging off a rope bridge or you can be doing whatever and you can do it all in the safety of your bedroom and uh, the pay isn't as good maybe but it's like (laughs) but I do think that you get it's just that whatever part of your brain whatever sort of side that fuels the imagination or something like that I just think that was always the thing for me I mean I think that I saw like my I, I was trying to think just before I, I, I got on the 
on the line with you about what I was trying to think of like the first play I ever saw and how significant that was. And I don't, I don't quite know, but I do have a memory of we lived in, because I'm from Dundalk and we went, I think when I was four, we went to Dublin for a year. And during that year, I think it must've been, I remember sitting in the gaiety watching uh, Maureen Potter. Uh, and all I remember was uh, my only image of it is that is it was of a very diminutive, lady with this i presume it was mother goose because it looked like a big bird costume or something like that and i I have a sort of sense memory to it or something that when i think about it i kind of go oh my god like and i don't that's my only memory of it it's like a flash but i i I mean maybe that had something to do with my interest in some ways you know so then as you grew up a bit more from kind of Star Wars and Indiana Jones, at what stage did you think, right, well, I actually might go and, and have a crack at this? What, what was the thought process there? And, and were families supportive? Were families saying, for the love of Jesus, would you not go and get a real job? Right. Well, I, I just on your first point, I still think I'm in the world of Star Wars and Indiana Jones. <laughs> I've moved on from that. But um, I think... Um, as I sort of as I sort of got uh, older, well, sort of when I was about eight or nine, I was fascinated and still am by magic. And uh, myself and uh, uh, our friend Fergal McElhern, who uh, Fergal and I, uh, Fergal's like one of my longest friends, and wow. uh, he and I went to this uh, to magic classes with this guy Patsy Murphy, who passed away just a couple of years ago, but. He was a, a local uh, magician who was a professional, and he was great, and he was a lovely guy. And on Saturdays, we used to go learn magic tricks with Patsy. He didn't by any chance perform under the name of Gemini at Mosney Holiday Centre, did he? He was Gemini, that's right. Man, my whole child is falling coming out in front of my eyes. That's amazing. But that's, uh, that's, actually, I have something for you that actually might even peel that back further, but we'll get on to that in a sec. But um, yes, Gemini, Patsy was Gemini, and he was a great, great guy, and so... Uh, Fergal and I then, you know, he used to, we would practice and practice and practice and then Patsy would be doing a show at like the Fairways Hotel or in Dundalk or someplace. And he would let us do a couple of tricks first, like uh, in front of an audience. And we were like awful, like we were just terrible. <laughs> I don't remember tricks going wrong all the time or the props not working or something, but it was brilliant. I loved it. And then as I was a teenager, I sort of got in, like I sort of practiced more and more and more, and I started to do shows on my own. I used to do, like, uh, like I would do shows for children's birthday parties, you know what I mean? Or teachers of mine at uh, secondary school would hear that I would do this, and so they'd hire me to do their kids' party. Um, and so I was really into that for a long time. And I think during that time, I suppose you kind of, you get an appreciation or... Um, uh, an understanding maybe of performing and people being on stage and whatever and so I started to go to see local shows like maybe school shows that Fergal was in I saw Fergal do a number of those and our schools I was in a different school and we never did any of those um, but I always went to see Fergal's ones and then very like saw early days of Red Kettle and Sharabank would come to the town hall and uh, I remember seeing Shadow of a Gunman that the Peacock did and you know it used to be a great it was a great town for touring touring company so I really got a kick out of that and then my uncle Jared was an English teacher in an all-girls school next door to ours and he would whatever play that they were studying for the leaving cert he would bring uh you know his class or the classes the English classes to see that uh, get on a coach to to Dublin so 
he would bring me on that. Now, it was a double whammy because I got to sit on a busload of girls. <laughs> got to see things like a lot of Joe Dowling's work at the at the Gaiety. Like, I remember vividly the plow and the stars um, that he did that was spectacular. McCann and Kavanaugh. You know, Anita Reeves. Uh, it was just, uh, it was just really uh, stunning to me to be able to sit in a theater that size as a, in a more conscious, I suppose, state than when I'd seen Maureen do that show years before that, and just, uh, and just be so invigorated by it. And uh, I remember seeing Borstal Boy. Now he didn't bring the girls to see Borstal Boy. I was asked. My parents asked me what I wanted for my birthday, and I said I wanted to go and see a play. So they, I got a single ticket to go and see Borstal Boy uh, when Dara did it. And uh, it was, uh, you know, again, remarkable. And it's just that sort of thing where you just get fueled by, you get inspired, I think, by, or nudged into it by by watching other people or by appreciate, appreciating other people and stuff. So, so, yeah, I mean, it was kind of like all, it's never occurred to me to do anything else. That's ever. amazing. That's really amazing. And it's just, I think... And I don't remember a moment where I kind of went, I want to be an actor. I just always wanted to be a part of that other world that was sort of, I was sort of like on one side. I wanted to be on the other side of like the, whatever, the looking glass, whatever the hell you want to call it. But like, it was, uh, it was just a constant obsession for me to, you know, to do something like that. So what then was the first step into the professional world then? How did, how did you make that leap? Well, the professional world was, um, again, I mean, you were sort of asked about, I mean, my, my, I think because it was so different and so new and everything that my parents, you know, they're incredibly supportive. I mean, they're such beautiful people, but they didn't, they don't, they still don't get it. I think they get a real kick out of it, out of coming to see me and stuff or seeing me on the telly or something like that. But they, they didn't understand it. And they, I think that they're, they're probably, their ideas about it were all very old fashioned ideas that, You'd be a down and out that, you know, uh, an alcoholic and blah, 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 like all of those things that are that are sort of labeled as being sort of um, the stereotypical life of an actor or whatever at that time. And so um, they were very re reluctant to me to do a, a full time course. I, I looked it up in the newspapers and I I found out about the Gaiety School and I found out about a few other places. And funnily enough, because Trinity comes up a lot. I had no, I, Trinity was not on my map. I didn't realize that, I thought it had to be a specialist kind of course. I didn't know that colleges also had, you know, drama departments. I knew nothing about it at all. And so I did, I did get a shot at uh, the Gaiety and I did get a shot at a place, I can't remember the name of it, that I got into, but they were full time. And so uh, my parents weren't into it. So they agreed that if I did a part-time course, that they would let me borrow the money from the bank to do that. Um, but I also had to do something with it. So I, I ended up getting into the, uh, the Oscar school. Uh, right. The yes, where um, the sort of main teachers there were Alan Stanford and uh, Kevin McHugh. And so I, I went there and also at the same time went to Dundalk Regional College to do business and marketing. So the two of them for two years kind of ran, ran side by side. Um, the, the Oscar got all of my attention, like all of it. I mean, I think in the first year at the Regional College, I think I went to 11 lectures. That's good work. That is good work, Smithy. I'm proud of you there. You know what? 
they were that was a good eleven. Um, um, <laughs> but I remember every bit of it. But I totally rumble because Dundalk is a small town. My dad played golf with the guy who ran the course and said, "I've never even heard of your son." <laughs> <laughs> so I got totally nabbed. But the first day that I got into the regional college, I had just done a couple of weeks at the Oscar School and. I went and I said, is there a drama society here? They said, no. And I said, okay, great. And Fergal McElhern was just starting in there too. He was doing a different, an engineering course. And so between the two of us, we, we uh, basically formed a drama society uh, there. And so I spent my two years while I was supposed to be studying marketing and uh, all of that, uh, directing plays. Uh, like uh, basically one act plays and like when I say directing I mean it's the kind of thing I had no idea what to do but I was trying just to figure out what the hell the whole thing was about and then using what I was learning at the Oscar to try and sort of inform some of that so Fergal would be in the plays and I would sort of I, I would direct them but my energy was all about the Oscar school and you know the teachers were some of them were fantastic some of them it was very theater orientated it wasn't at all uh, nothing to do with film or TV or anything. Um, but in particular, Alan Stanford's class. Um, I mean, you know my relationship with Alan. It's very, I've known him now for like uh, over 20 years. He's be we've become very good friends and colleagues and all of that. But at the time, he he took a particular shine, I think, to Fergal and I, because Fer uh, Fergal also went to the Oscar school at the same time I did. Um, because Fergal and I, we just worked very well as a double act and we worked incredibly hard. I think some people who were there were maybe not as invested. They were seeing if it was something that they wanted to do. Uh, but Fergal and I were just all about, we just really, really, really wanted to do it. And so, uh, so by the time we got through the course and Alan, again, Alan's course was particularly effective because all two years culminated in one class where over the two years we did all these exercises and different methods and whatever and we would learn to create a character and we'd have to go and sit in the class for two hours and do a Q&A as the character. The, uh, the only sort of the, the confines of it were that it had to be 10 years older or 10 years younger than we were. Right, okay. Outside of that you could do whatever you wanted to do and so it was a terrifying thing. It was sort of like the closest thing, I suppose, to like, like, a, like a method sort of idea because you had to, it was all, Alan's all about observation and sort of um, like everything that you do being informed by something else, by something that you've seen or that you re recognize as grounded in reality or whatever. So, so that, that class to me was particularly effective and, you know, so we did two years of that and, you know, we were doing voice and script and all of these kind of things. But in terms of, for somebody who doesn't know, who didn't have one clue what it, what it meant or what it needed uh, to be an actor, um, that was the class that informed me the most by, by a long shot. And gave you a good solid grounding then to go and, to go and say, right, okay, I think I can do this now. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that I think that what was really helpful to me was that once we once we finished the two years there was that my first couple of jobs, more or less, were with Alan. And so, uh, you know, and it was the early days of Second Age. So he was he gave me a couple of a couple of shots at that. And I, it's one of the things I really I respect about him. He does give new actors uh, or wannabe actors. He gives them a fair shot. Yeah, absolutely take a risk on it and not a lot not a lot of people 
uh, do that. But I really respect that he that he really tries to uh, nurture new talent. So it was terribly intimidating to me to go in to do a real play. I'd done a couple of amateur plays as I was uh, studying at the Oscar, like in the town hall and on dock and stuff. But but I it was terribly intimidating to go in and work with genuinely terrific actors like you know uh, Bosco Hogan. Uh, you know, I met my friend Simon O'Gorman there, like just loads of like great, great, you know, Jonathan White was in there. Like uh, I saw a picture of you yesterday on Facebook with Frank McCusker and Frank played Hamlet when uh, in that first show. So it was like um, so it was very terribly intimidating. And I sort of thought initially the first couple of shows, I don't like this. I want out. Really? It doesn't suit me. No, I was too, too nervous and too uh, I just didn't think I was any, like, for quite a while, actually, I just didn't think I was any good. And I, like, I kept going at it. At one point, I just said, no, I'm, fuck this, I'm done with it, I can't do it anymore, because I'm not, I was surrounded by people who I thought were really, really good, and really strong, and had a real, uh, real grasp and ability to do it and I didn't feel that I had that and now I suppose in retrospect you look at it and you kind of go well okay so maybe but Bosco was probably doing it for 15 years before I ever popped up or 20 years or, do you know what I mean like yeah. people have, but you just all, all you know is that because once you're in once you're once you start rehearsal for a play I don't care if you're playing Hamlet or I don't care if you're playing Bernardo it doesn't matter you're all on the same playing field and you all have to deliver and I feel that I was delivering and so I had sort of hemmed and hawed about about giving it up and I couldn't think of anything else I'd squandered my two years <laughs> the, by by indulging my fantasy of, of getting involved in theater and what have you and um, so I didn't know what to do and then you know I did a play with uh, Peter Sheridan that he wrote with this group, and like there was a lot of a lot of really cool people were involved in it. Jerry Ryan, amongst others, Siobhan Garrahy, a bunch of people, and um, it was it was a lead role, and I'd never had a lead role, and I was I went and auditioned for it because that's what you did, and Peter gave me the job, and it was and it was great, and we were doing it in the project as part of the festival, and but it was so incredibly nerve wracking, and I think I frustrated Peter beyond belief, because I was so insecure and so worried about it. But, you know, he he stuck by it and, and uh, you know, it was a real, I sort of got a sense of what it could be like if you just get over yourself and concentrate on the job in hand and forget about what other people are thinking about you, then maybe, maybe you can actually get on with it. Because Peter lost his shit with me one day. <laughs> Sing a song and I hated singing and he he lost it. I think he was just so frustrated with me and I get it. Like I absolutely get it. But I was dumbfounded that somebody lost, like got got cross at me. And uh, but it was a good lesson because he never said as much. But I, basically, what I took away from it is, if you're going to do it, you have to. It's not just about ability. It's about behaving in a particular way. It's about you know, knowing your place and being just being responsible for what you have to do in that, you know, in that space and with those people and, you know, what your function is. And I never thought about that. All I could think about was, oh, I'm shit, I'm shit, I'm shit, I'm shit, I'm shit. And so it just was a bit of a, 
it was a it was a it was a kick in the arse, but it was a very good kick in the arse. Yeah, I mean that's a really interesting thing to me because you think you kind of the stereotype of actors is that the, you know they're really needy and it's out in front of an audience and love me, love me, love me. And so you would have thought possibly that if people kept on giving you gigs and you kept you know and people you know handing you lead roles and stuff that you would have gone oh maybe if everybody's having this much faith in me that maybe I can do it. But it's interesting that you were still kind of beating yourself up a little bit even with people showing that much faith in you. Well, yeah, I mean, I suppose, I mean. Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, that never occurred to me at the time. It never occurred. It was just like you get the lead role in this and you kind of go, oh, my God. Oh. <laughs> As opposed to like like now, now or in, in subsequent years, it was kind of like you you pursue certain lead roles because you because you learn what your function is. You learn how to how to be responsible and you learn how to navigate your way through uh, through each piece, you know, and so. Um, and so then they're, they're not as intimidating to you anymore. You, it's more, it becomes, this is what you do. And then you just continue to try and be better yeah. and continue to improve and whatever. So no, it never occurred to me that anyone had, had any faith in me. It always, I always kind of felt that maybe somebody was just doing me a favor. Well, look, let's fast forward a little bit then. And how quickly did the whole fair city thing happen for you? Right. Am I yakking too much? Not at all. This is so great. This is glorious. It's like, a, it's like the ripcord got pulled. And fair, <laughs> well, yeah, Fair City just started off to me as, again, I was, I was, I think, I was two years into it, maybe, into acting, and uh, I got a call to do, and it was initially to do three episodes over two weeks. And uh, it was to play the best friend of um, Deirdre Malloy's character, which was great for me because Deirdre and I are, have been long, I've been friends for many, many years. And we were fr- very good friends at that time or by that time, too. So um, but I was terribly nervous going in. I don't think I'd ever auditioned for anything on camera before. And uh, but I got it. And uh, so we went in and we did the two weeks and I, I really liked it. It was a whole other. It just felt totally different. I mean, talk about stepping into like in the institution and the sort of the stakes had gone up slightly at that point. I remember with, with Fair City because all of a sudden there was people like, you know, Pat Levy, Joan O'Hara, Susan Fitzgerald, uh, Garrett Keough, people like that, people who were sort of because Fair City got ridiculed for such a long time and maybe still does. I don't know. But 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 there was sort of it had upped its ante a bit, I think. And so it became a thing that people wanted to do. And uh, I certainly wanted to do it, but uh, anyways, but um, but we did the couple of weeks, and it was very much just try and fit in. I remember Paul Rayner said to me the first, the very first day I was there, I was very nervous, and we went and watched a rugby game afterwards. And he said to me, he said, uh, "The trick about this is that no one has the time to help you out. It's a sink or swim thing. Either you do it or you don't." And I remember kind of going, "That's really mean," but it wasn't. He was being like. He was kind of going. That's that's how it is. It's it's too busy. There's too many things going on for people to, and it's rehearsed in isolation at the time. So you just have to do it. And so we did the episodes, and they turned out fine. And then about uh, six months later, I got a call to say, "Do you want to come back and do five weeks?" And I was like, uh, "Yeah, I, I will." And they were like, uh, "We're going to do this. Uh, we're going to make your character gay." And I was like, "All right." And they were like, do you have any problems with it? And I was like, well, no. But we talked about it before I did it. And they, I was just keen to kind of avoid any stereotypical kind of... Because it was the first time that, they'd, that an Irish soap had done something like that or had even sort of 
nodded in the direction of homosexuality. So it was kind of like, uh, you know, I, I just was kind of going, well, let's just play it as a straightforward kind of down the line bloke who incidentally is gay. And uh, they were like, oh, yeah, they were great. And we did that and that worked out fine. And then a year went by and then, uh, and that's all I had done. And then I went back to it and did another four and a half years, I think. Wow. And weren't there some groundbreaking storylines at the time, like kind of firsts for Irish TV and stuff, like you say, it was, kind of, it was the first kind of gay character, but were the, was there the first on-screen kiss as well, maybe? I didn't actually kiss. This was the big thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like, I, I, this, is where, this is where I kind of regret sometimes that I, I sort of just say what's on my mind. And I, and I probably always shouldn't because I, I don't know. But at the time, no soap opera in the world had had two men kissing in a prime time slot. What had just happened was in America, Melrose Place was the original kind of reincarnation of it was still on. And uh, they had shot as a season uh, finale scene, the, the out gay character in that making a move and kissing one of the other characters. And that would, that would have gone out at 10 o'clock at night, but the network, whoever that was at the time, thought it was too risky for 10 o'clock at night, so pulled it. Wow. So we were, we were doing this, and I, I, I you know, read the script, and I knew they were going to go down, sort of have my character good do, have a, a relationship, like a, uh, explore that kind of idea. And, um, and so we got the script, and it says, it said in the script that they go to kiss, and just before they kiss, Jasmine Russell walks in the door, and we get all flustered and kind of go, and then and don't do it. And uh, I was I was furious for a couple of weeks saying, come on, no one's ever done it. Let's do it. Like, we, we don't have to throw each other on the counter or do anything like that. We just have to, like, do it because then you're like, you actually have broken a uh, new ground. Now, it may not be hugely significant ground, but you've made a, a big step. And they were like, no, no, it goes out at half seven or eight o'clock at night, whatever it was. And I was like, oh, and I really pushed, even on the day we were shooting it. And to be honest, I didn't like the guy who was playing my boyfriend at the time. <laughs> Awful guy. But anyway, uh, but, but I was like, come on, let's do it, let's do it. And uh, they were like, no, no, no. And then about six weeks later, EastEnders did it with two of their male characters, where the, yeah, the two of them, EastEnders I used to watch, and, uh, and they had the two, these two guys absolutely devouring each other on a bench. And they're sort of, as far as I know, like in the history books as having the, been the people to break that taboo. And I was, I always sort of, I don't regret it, but I kind of think it was a missed opportunity, maybe. So, but, but it's always referred to as the first gay kiss, but it was the first almost gay kiss. Story of your life, Smithy, eh? My life. <laughs> well, then, look. Okay, another thing I want to talk to you about was um, you've mentioned your ongoing relationship with Alan Stanford. Uh, was he your way into the gay theatre? Because I know you've done a huge amount of work at the gays. Uh, yeah. Well, Alan was like. Um, I mean, I sort of can't emphasise enough. I suppose the influence and the help, um, and I suppose the, the mentorship that I've received from Alan, uh, like. From the get-go, he really, really, really took me under his wing when we were uh, at the Oscar, gave me my first couple of breaks, and continued 
to give me work when, you know, and certainly in my head, I didn't feel that deserving of, or I didn't feel like I was able to do maybe for certainly for a long time. Um, but I, as far as I know, as far as I know, my actual, my first show that I did in the gate was, I did a little bit in the sunshine boys. And, uh, I think as far as I know, Susan Fitzgerald was the person who told me about that. And, uh, because when I went to audition for it, uh, I'd never met Michael before, and Michael told me that Susan spoke very highly of me. So I think that initially that is what maybe that or that's where maybe maybe Susan dropped my name or something like that. Um, I have no knowledge of whether or not Alan was involved in that, but certainly Alan was very responsible in keeping me in that fray for for sure. And what what are your thoughts and feelings on? The gate. Did you have a great time there? Is it is it a wonderful place to be working? You know, I'm yeah. I I, uh, I sound like I'm stalling because I'm not. I adore the gate. Uh, I, I I there's nothing really. My experiences in there have been nothing, nothing short of uh, stellar. Uh, like I think every time. Um, it's funny because because I didn't do. I haven't done a lot of work at the Abbey. So my. My relationship with the Abbey has been sort of infrequent over the years, but um, but the Gate is such a beautiful theatre to play in. It's such a. It feels very. It to me, it feels like getting a hug. Right. Uh, out there, it's it's just that it, it's a big enough space that you can like in terms of an auditorium that you can fill it. But when you're on stage, it feels it feels very intimate and feels like. That you're all there together, and um, uh, I love what I love about. Uh, I mean, I love Michael. I, I I have no qualms about saying that. I uh, Michael has never been anything but uh, but generous and 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 cool with me. Um, and my experiences working in there have been your own. The only thing that you need to worry about, the only thing, is show up and do the job and do it as best you can. And uh, <clears throat> and so I think that that's. I mean, I don't think you can ask for anything more. I mean, <clears throat> I count some of my experiences in the gate as being some of my favourite that I've ever had. Yeah, no, it's a place that fascinates me because it's a place I've never worked. Um, and it seems that it is this magical little world in and of itself. And, uh, and you know, you look at someone like Michael Colgan, and I think you have to say, hands down, in terms of the island of Ireland, he is the best straight-up theatre producer in the country. No one can create a theatrical event the way that Michael can. Michael is hands down the best producer I've ever met, without exception. Um, uh, not just theatre, not just theatre. I think in general, his and what's great about him, I think, is that he. Any time you talk to him about the job, his. He what he, he's a brilliant. I think he must be the best second eye for a director to have. I think because his his instincts and his understanding about what he's looking at is I think second to none. His, he, wants, he wants the material to get the best representation it can be. He wants the best people that he feels to, to, help, him rep, to help him do that, help him represent it. And I think that, I think that uh, he is the most consistent in terms of theater. Uh, you, there's, there's always a level at the gate that I think that I haven't experienced in any other theater consistently. Like I've, I've experienced amazing theater in many, many places, but with the gate, it just feels 
It just feels like his 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 standards are so high, are so high that I think that that it it him and it sort of makes you it makes it ups your game. It certainly that's certainly my experience of it, and I know many others would feel the same way. Well, now listen. You mentioned earlier on about a formative time in your youth being seeing Maureen Potter at the Gaiety, and you subsequently went on to have a long association with the Gaiety Panto. It, look, it's a it's a style of theatre that absolutely fascinates me. Um, not least because my dad played the lead in the Panto, kind of at the height of his Anything Goes fame when I was maybe four or five, and just that whole thing, the, the kind of the throwback to the old style music hall entertainment and, and variety end of it. I absolutely loved. What was that experience like for you being? across um being across all those pantos you did um it was uh exceptional uh i mean i mean i i like you have i have a great not not a fondness for it because that would just be i have a love of panto i have a love of irish panto in particular i have i think it is and this is something because alan alan stanford the last couple that i did alan came in as director on it and, you know, we, we all have, like, I think that the Panto is the most important theater event in the, without exception, because what it does do is it introduces people to theater for the first time. And you, you introduce, like, the kids are there, like, who are like six weeks old sometimes, but like all the way up, like all the way up to like sort of 11 and 12. And then when they're 12, they kind of think it's ridiculous. And then... It's the parents. But then, so you have this like sort of like eight, eight to 10 years of an age range that really get a kick out of it, that really love it and, and maybe have never seen uh, a play before. And, uh, and they're, they are introduced to, to it in a way that is so inclusive and so colorful and so friendly and uncynical. And uh, I just think it's amazing because it covers lots of different. Um, you know, you have that have pop songs that they know and then original songs. They get to see an orchestra. They get to see all these great dancers, cartoon like sets, uh, hopefully actors who really know uh, what they're doing and, and the sort of style that they're doing. And in particular, a big thing is the, the inclusion of the kids, like whether it's the Billy Barry kids or Helen Jordan's kids, any of those kids, um, because children love looking at other children on stage. And so there's just an amazing, amazing uh, feeling to being a part of that, to being a part of just very clean cut, down the line storytelling and watching. Like you get to, you know, especially as, as I sort of progressed on Panto, I sort of like the last four that I did, a lot of the time it was me up front talking to the audience and getting them to, to interact and all of that kind of stuff. And you just get to, you're standing in front of 1,200 people and they're screaming stuff at you and they're helping you out and they're, you know, they feel that they are a part of helping the hero defeat the villain. And I, I just think it's, I think it's so pure and so effective if it's done well that it can really, I, like I know so many people who remember either seeing uh, Maureen or... Uh, even people who saw Jimmy O'D do it and, and then, you know, Twink or whatever. But, like, just that they have – it is a very formative time, I think, or a very formative event for kids if it's done well. And I think that that is what breeds the next generation of theatre goers or maybe sparks an interest. And I think that – so I – apart from the fact that I love being in it, I think it's the hardest work 
that I've consistently ever done as an actor without without exception. But it is the most rewarding because you just and your ego gets blown out of all proportion because you're you're standing there and there's like kids, a thousand kids sometimes screaming every time you walk on the stage. I mean, there's <laughs> they're not screaming and running out the other way, I suppose, but they're like uh, it's a really it's a really beautiful uh uh, I think uh, format and I think it's I mean it does like you do like the last few we did we did like a hundred shows in nine weeks and it is a full on the last one honest this is the last one that I did I think it was Sleeping Beauty I lost 20 pounds in weight over the run of that show good Jesus 20 pounds and I was eating like and you can ask the guy like I used to share a dressing room a lot with uh, David O'Mara and people. And then, like, Richie Hayes came onto it for the last few that I did. And, like, we would share the dressing room together. And, like, I was eating constantly, drinking water constantly. But it's like being on a treadmill when you have those two shows a day for five hours a day. There's no let up. And there's no understudies. There's none of that. And so it's just a real put the head down and go at it. And if you don't enjoy it, I can imagine it's the worst time of your life because there's no escape from it. But the the energy and the happiness and the joy that the audience comes to to that show really helps you out. Really helps you get through it. So I I adore it. I absolutely adore it. It's great. Look, I want to talk to you about the move to the states because it, you know, it like I've said I've said this a couple of times, but you know, for a lot of people kind of they go and try and try their look in London or New York or LA. And for a lot of people, you know, maybe it doesn't really happen for them. But for you, it seems that it's really taken off. And, and I'm delighted that it has. But talk to me about the, the motivation behind making that move to begin with. Um, and then also just the reality of what life is like on the ground in LA, which probably has more actors per square mile than anywhere else in the world. Uh, yeah. Um, right. Well, there's a lot in there. So let me just, um, okay. I think, and this goes back to my sort of, I think my, my uh, sort of fantasist way of viewing about being on TV and in films and on stage and what have you. Uh, the I, I part always felt that I wanted to live in America, and I have no idea <laughs> other than I think maybe as a kid I told myself that okay that's where the movies get made, or you have to go to Hollywood or whatever. But then as I grew up and whatever. The, the 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 niggling uh, sort of desire to check it out never went away. I mean, it never went away. And but I just didn't. I I never pursued it on any kind of uh, serious way because I didn't. I didn't have a way in or whatever. And then I did in two thousand and one. I think it was. I did. I was doing my first incarnation of the importance of being earnest and uh, uh, with Gunanua and these guys. I remember the night, I remember it well, because we had to hold the curtain for 20 minutes and we were all pissed off. And we were like kind of going, why? Why are we holding the curtain for this? And they're kind of going, oh, there's some, there are kind of some film people that are in town. I was like, oh, Jesus, like uh, 20 minutes, we're, we're, we're ready to go. And so anyway, we held the curtain. And then the next day, the script for a film called Bobby's Girl, which is um, was the TV movie for Showtime, uh, was left there for me. And uh, the, the director and the producers have been there the night before. And... I was asked to go in and meet the director and tell a joke. That's what everyone's... Uh, I didn't have to read, which was great. He said when I went in there that he wanted me to do it and, and uh, whatever, which was great. And uh, we had to tell a joke, which was awful. But um, 
so so those guys gave me the job and I did the movie and we all got along very well. And so I came out later that year. One of the actors in it, it was sort of who's my first friend really in, in L.A. Uh, it's an actor called Jonathan Silverman. And Johnny, I came out to stay with him and we had dinner with the producers and whatever. And they said to me, have you ever thought about coming out? Because we think, you know, it would be good for you. It would be good for you to do it. And I was like, I mean, I'd like to, but I don't know how, how to do it. And the thing about it is, is that this was just, this was just, I believe, after 9-11. And so already there was, there was talks of where like visas were being shut down. It was all no, no. And it was all, you know, nobody had, uh, nobody had an in anywhere. It was just like, like shutting down the borders kind of thing. And but they said, look, you know, we think we can get you in because we have a project and, you know, we want to attach you to it. And so that way we can go around that way. So I was like, OK, and uh, I really wanted to do it. But then I was literally going back to Ireland to do I had a year's work. I'd finished on Fair City at this point, and, but I had a year of theatre ahead of me to do. So I knew I couldn't do anything for a year. So I sort of dropped the ball on it a bit. And then. I don't know. I think I was just starting to feel a little bit like I was on a hamster wheel and a, and a very, a very kind, uh, benevolent hamster wheel, a fur lined hamster wheel. <laughs> Certainly a bit of a just I was literally kind of doing I was doing panto, then going into second age, then doing a show at the gate, uh, doing like sort of either a show with the boys at Gunanua or wherever else. And then getting back into panto again. And so I sort of was beginning to feel like uh, I just, I, 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 I don't know if this makes any sense to you, but the notion of fear, the notion of having that exhilaration again, having that sort of like, how in the name of Jesus am I going to fucking do this? I mean, that's, and I was beginning to lose that. And I, I didn't want to be, and I've never respected it in other actors the guy who was starting to get angry or get sort of like resentful of the fact that I was working a lot but uh, but not but kind of pissed off at the same time and I I've never understood that but I, I I think I started to feel oh I could see where this could go if I just if if I keep doing this and it's a it's a privileged place to be in to to be working all the time but uh I think I think I might just start phoning it in and not bothering my arse. And so uh, for me, it was like a real, I thought about moving and then I was like London, wherever, I don't know. And then I just kind of went, you know, go big or go home and do it. Like if you're going to do it, like just do it. And uh, so I, I, I called the, the guys and I just said, and this is like a year and a half, maybe later, I said, is that offer still open? And they were like, yeah. So they submitted this application and I uh, finally got the visa, um, which at this point was, I think, 2006. So it was sort of like that. And, you know, there was there was just a couple of things that, uh, that I wasn't content about in my own life, in the things that I felt were not were not helping me. Like, you like you know about this whole kind of, um, I had to fight the revenue commissioners, which ended up being over seven years um, on something that should never have ever happened. And I felt, I. I it took a lot of my confidence. It took a lot of my my sort of belief that I had built. I was starting to feel a little bit like, yeah, I'm complacent and I don't care anymore. I don't think I can do this anymore, but I don't give a shit sort of thing. And 
So I kind of went, no, you want you want that challenge again. You need that challenge again. And so uh, when the visa came in, I had made friends over the years through Johnny. He'd come over to visit and friends of his would come over to visit. And I went over to visit them and whatever, just sort of on any holidays that I would have, I would sort of spend time out here. And so then, yeah, I just kind of went, all right, um, give it a lash. Just see. And initially it was for initially it was for a year. And by the time I got over here, it was the visa. It was I had only nine months left on it. And then I had to wait for three months for my Social Security to come through. So I essentially had in order to kind of at that time to renew the visa, you had to do a certain amount of work, really, in order to justify them extending it. So it was a real case of shit. I just have to, I have to get straight in here and just and start booking jobs. So, which luckily I did. I, I booked enough uh, the first in the first six months for them to extend it by another year. So, so that was sort of like the beginning of it, I suppose. But that should be. That that's kind of a phenomenally quick turnaround. I mean, if you think of people, you know, trying to establish themselves, whether it's in Dublin or in London or New York or LA, the idea of starting to book gigs in that first six months before anybody knows who you are or what you've done—that's kind of an amazing turnaround. Well, I suppose. I mean, I suppose it is. I mean, uh, one of the great differences between between uh, here and being at home is uh, what statistics mean, or 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 what. Like if you analyze uh, an actor's statistics in Dublin and you analyze them in uh, in Los Angeles, they're very different. If you like, if you book two jobs in a year over here, which might be like you might get an episode of this and an episode of that, you're considered a working actor because the majority of actors over here, the majority and like the vast majority into the ninety percent, do not work and never work. Uh, they don't have representation of any sort. Um, they don't have any in, but they take these classes and they they continue to kind of maybe try and work in these small theatres that don't pay any money and, and, and all of that kind of stuff in order to get seen, which is all very, I think it's incredibly uh, admirable and focused and uh, and all of that. But it's, you know, so if you if you do relatively little work, uh, over here, you're considered a working actor. But in that first six months, I I think I booked uh, three different um, episodes of shows. And I think that they were shows that had a very high profile. So it looked very good on the application in terms of, in terms of uh, you know, you send it in, they see X, Y, and Z on your, uh, on your uh, application. They kind of go, oh, okay, that's well, that's good. Well, then obviously he's good to go for another year. So then they give you another year. And so it was like certainly sporadic. But when you when you hit on something, it does like it, it will or it should propel you to do something like to, to, to get another job. Like the people at CBS, when I first got here, the CBS network, I because I had to wait three months before I could work because I, I had no social security card. And so they kind of took me under their wing a little bit. I met a few people through general meetings and um, got me in to get to audition for their shows, uh, some of which I got. So, so that was really, really helpful. And then when I was, you know, applying for the renewal of my visas, they all wrote letters and they all did all that kind of stuff. So that was all very, 
very, very helpful. But I mean, you certainly have more downtime here. You know, I mean, I've had years here that have been fantastic. And then I've had like last year for me was was crippling almost. But it's like I often have the I know this is something that rings through for you, but I, I have the, I have the you know, that boxing metaphor of kind of like here, like the 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 impersonal nature of the industry here and the pure business element of it here is very disarming. Um, you just don't understand it. Like you kind of go, well, hey, you just got I don't know uh, three episodes of NCIS, and I'm kind of going, fuck yeah, and the and the agents are kind of going, well, all right, this it, it doesn't mean anything. Like it doesn't mean anything. If you if you get a regular role on a network show, that's when that. But they don't. That's small fry to them. But to people like me or to the jobbing actor who's trying to find their way, it's huge, you know, and. Um, so it's so you you just you really have to um, you know people are very helpful here. I find them incredibly. When I first got here, everyone picked up the phone for me. Everyone really, really, really helped out. But when you get into it and you're you're sort of in the mix, then you just like you get so many knocks, and you get so many you know you hit the canvas and you just don't want to get up again. You just want the bell to ring and just go to sleep because it's it's hard. It's, you know, and it's, it's, but it's also beautiful and it's amazing. And it's, what it is, is the extremes are here. When you're, when it's busy, you, like, I've never felt better as an actor when it's been busy here. And when I'm working a lot and at the moment it's very good and I'm feeling really great. But when you're down, it's awful. And I think maybe as a, as a, as an immigrant, that might be, part of it too because at least at home you have like like you pick up the phone and kind of go uh and go let's have a pint or let's do whatever you can meet somebody within a half an hour of where you are or you there's always company and there's always a support but over here people are busy people are here to work and so there's you know there's not that comfort level there's not that support level that we're used to or that we maybe take for granted and so you have to just find an element of resilience, I think, that maybe you didn't need before. Or certainly, that's what I felt. Yeah, okay, here's a possibly a controversial question. I mean, you've had significant success over there. Like you say, you're talking about, you know, those big, you have done the, the NCIS, the CSIs, the Criminal Minds, like you, you've, you've got these big TV shows. Is there, do you see a difference in the attitude towards the work over there? And here's the controversial bit. Are people more, is there a more professional approach to the work over there compared to what might be a little bit of a more complacent attitude in Dublin? Because, ah, sure, everyone knows everyone and sure, that director is going to give me a gig in six months' time anyway. Right. Um, that's a very good question because, and it's one that I I go uh, sort of between pillar and post on this one because, if that's the right phrase, because you go on to some certain shows where you know where they call it like the number one who's like the top of the bill so like i don't know um say gary sinise for example or uh, you know you go in there and it's like he is a guy who his work ethic is exemplary you know what i mean it's like you'd say the same like Forrest whitaker it's exemplary it's like they're prepared ready to go and ready to play as well. They're generous with it too. 
And so, and like, this is like, I mean, when I did the Criminal Minds thing, the one that, uh, where I was blessed to get a shot at Forrest Whitaker, uh, they were, they were in their, like it was cancelled, the show was cancelled, so they were still figuring it out, so they were very enthused. When I worked with Gary, that was sort of like in year four, and a lot of the time they are, they're tired at that point, and they're sort of a bit over it, and they'll just learn it on the day, but he was very, very well prepared and very, um, very uh, willing to, to work on a scene with you and play with you, whatever, and it was a real, Mark Harmon is a brilliant example, where he's just all about don't bring your phone to the set. All you have to do is show up, have a brilliant time with everyone, just do your work, and then we'll play afterwards. And he leads that, and that's the feeling you get on his set or whatever. But there are certain other shows that, and they're usually shows that aren't as good, actually, where your main actors haven't even read the script on the day where you're shooting, and they don't know what they're doing. And they have, so they'll rehearse it and figure out and then cut their lines and do whatever. The actors have a lot more power here an awful lot more power and so they can they kind of go I'm not doing that or I'm not, I'm not into this or let's change this or whatever and then they'll go and they'll when they're getting made up or they're they're whether well, setting up the lights or whatever that's when they learn the script and I, I I can't fathom what that would be like I can't fathom the notion of not going to work getting up in the morning and not knowing my lines I can't I can't function in a way that that those people do and uh, so there's a bit of both. Some of them are so over it and done and beaten up by it that they don't care. They'll, they still make a lot of money, but they don't care. Um, and yet others are just like phenomenal, phenomenal. And the, it's, a, it's, a great, it's a great thing to see that people who are, and they are people like who, there's a reason why, you know, like, again, like Forrest Whitaker is an Oscar winner. Timothy Hutton is an Oscar winner. You know, Gary Sinise, like all these guys, they're all like sort of lauded as being really terrific actors. And there's a reason because they set the example. They set the tone and they set, you know, what they expect. You know what it is? They lead. It's a, it's, I've rarely seen it before, but when you get onto a set and your main actor is leading the set, it's quite an exhilarating thing to be a part of because it feels supported, it feels prepared, and it feels safe. And, but you also feel like, well, if everyone's prepared, then we can, we can enjoy it. There is flexibility. There is kind of room to, um, to explore or whatever, whatever wanky term we like to use. But, but, um, but yeah, so there's a difference between those boys and then the guys who just... I, ha I will tell you a story. I did a little stint a few years back uh, on a soap opera over here. And I just did it for two weeks. And um, again, it was the CBS people who just called me out of the blue and said, do you want to do this thing? And I was like, I'll give it a shot. So I went in and it is exactly as the movies would suggest. There's a, you never meet the directors. It's a disembodied voice over a speaker. It's crazy. And um, they are on such a, they are in such a, they have so many scripts in their, in their head at one point that I did a scene with a guy who has been on the show for a long, long time and they shot him because I was up upstairs in my dressing room and they have, the, have it playing on a monitor. I was trying to figure out how they, how they work it. And they, they were shooting him from sort of mid, from like the chest up, maybe a bit below. And the reason they were doing that all the time was because he was holding his script in his hand as they shot it. So he held it just slightly down below camera 
So when he was checking it, he was he, he was checking his eye lines for the script, not for where the other actors were. And he <laughs> they were shooting it and he was reading it. So when the camera was on somebody else, he was looking at it. And then he looked down, dramatic pause, like Joey out of France, like look down and then look up and say the line. But he was holding it in his fucking hand when they and it was just like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. Like he didn't he would just turn up on the day, kind of go, what are we doing today? OK, all right. Okay, well, let's just, let's just rehearse it. We'll do it. We'll shoot it. It's fine. And he's, so everything for him was like a read. It was like a sight read. That's absolutely amazing. Holy Jesus, what a way to work. Right, come here to me then. So look, ambition-wise, what, what what, what's the happy ever after for you? Is it um, exclusively working over there, maybe as a big series regular on one of the big um, network shows? Would you like to come back and do a bit more work in Ireland? Do you want to go straight to the top and Oscars and everything? What, what's the plan? Uh, you know... Uh, I do now have a plan. I didn't have a plan when I came out here, and that was a mistake. Um, I, well, I, I have a plan in terms of what it is that I want. I didn't know what I want when I came over here. I just knew I wanted something different. Um, the ideal for me certainly would be to, I mean, after last year was so awful, uh, I had loads of immigration stuff that happened last year, and I just couldn't, I wasn't allowed to work for nearly five months, and it was awful. But, um, my my ideal is to is certainly to kind of keep doing these like uh, either guest spots or these recurring kind of roles. Like I did a show called Persons Unknown, which which kind of opened a number of doors for me in terms of because they gave me a great arc on that. Yes, and I have to admit I did download that illegally because I couldn't wait for it to come out over here because I wanted to see you too quickly. So my apologies for that. I will send you a check in the post. That's a, that's quite all right. <laughs> this one's on me, um, but. Uh, uh, you know, I, so I want to continue doing those until the series, the series regular roles come up. Because in terms of pilot season, as a guest actor, you don't really get seen very much. Like, I think I had two, one pre-read, what they call it, pre-read. You don't even get into film it uh, on pilot season just gone. It's like they take people for shows from shows that have already been cancelled or maybe cancelled and put them in the show. So it's it's not as those opportunities have not been available. Apparently, they're becoming more available now because drama, they've picked up a lot more hour-long dramas and stuff like that this year, and reality is starting to fade a bit, which is good. But, um, but yes, I would love, I would absolutely love to, uh, to, uh, to be on a show and to be on it on a regular basis and, to, and just to, to continue. I mean, I love living here. I love my life here. It's, uh, it really is. It's a charmed, it's a charmed, existence even when it's challenging it's still it's it's i feel very very blessed to, to have it but um you know things this year have been very good so hopefully we're leading towards something that's going to be more substantial and so more i suppose in a way secure if you will um because once you if you can get onto those shows then that gives you a great deal of freedom and a great deal of um a great deal of security certainly while the show is going on and um and just to keep working and to keep, you know, healthy and to, um, yeah, but I would love, I would absolutely love to go back. I was actually thinking about looking into maybe going back next summer and maybe doing a play because here during the summer, nothing happens. It's like in Ireland when RTE shuts down, nothing happens for three months. So they all, all the big shows shut down here over the summer. So I would really, really like to go back at some point and, uh, and do a play. Um, so we shall, I'm about to do a play here. Um, it's my first time doing a play since I left Ireland. So that'll be a kind of an interesting kind of, uh, thing. But, uh, 
but yes, I would love to spend a bit of time over there and sort of see everybody and keep my toe in that water. But I also love the pursuit of of what is possible over here. Right. Well, then, just before I let you go, without possibly naming any names, unless you absolutely want to, can you give us any hilarious or uh, scandalous Hollywood stories, possibly protecting the, the identities of the innocent, uh, or are you absolutely bound to secrecy on all of those things? Oh God. Uh, um, oh, do, you see, I've the thing about it is you do hear hilarious, hilarious uh, stories. Um, Oh Jesus! Now you see. Now I just feel totally on the spot. Um, oh God, God, God! Um, uh, shit. <laughs> I mean, I mean, like the kind of one where you were at a house party in some Hollywood A-listers, and then you saw him kissing another man territory, or the time you hooked up with some amazing, beautiful girl that we all know off the telly, or or none of the above. Ah, <laughs> uh, gosh. Um... You know what? I'm going to have to say I'm bound to secrecy on the ones that I could tell you on this. It's, do you know what it is? I don't know if you remember this, Ingo. Do you remember the donkey punch conversation that we had during Hamlet? Listen, as you know, Rory Keenan is a friend of the podcast. I couldn't possibly divulge any conversations about anything on this podcast right now. Yes, indeed. Well, I remember that conversation very well. And, I, and that sort of, it's one of those, because the person who told me you may not remember the context of that, but with somebody who was uh, particularly well known. And so um, uh, I'm afraid I'm just caught on. I've met a bunch of famous people, but in terms of like uh, in terms of gossip or filth, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll what I'll do is if I think I want to email it to you and you can include it in your introduction. How's that? Excellent. I look forward to it. Well, look, Alan, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. I'm, uh, I'm just so glad to get the chance to chat to you. And uh, hopefully we should be seeing you sometime soon, either with you back here doing a show or possibly me over there ripping it up in Hollywood with you. I hope to see you very soon. And congrats on the podcast. I love it. It's a great way for me as well to keep in touch with you and to what everyone else who all of the people that you have on the podcast is great. And I really admire that you guys are doing it. So keep it up. Excellent stuff, Smithy. Thanks so much. Good to talk to you, mate. See ya. So there you have it. The great Alan Smith. Such a superstar. Such a wonderful guy. And a guy who's really making things happen over there in the States. And I'm just so delighted. It really couldn't be happening to a nicer guy. He's a guy who's only going from strength to strength. So uh, watch this space, as they say. Absolutely delighted to get to chat with him. I love him to bits. So look, that brings us to our usual weekly roundup of what is going on around the city and the country. Theatre Upstairs has WAG. Um, that's playing all this week. And that is followed by Irreconcilable Differences, which will also have an evening performance on the Wednesday as far as I know, so that's worth checking out there. Um, the Viking Theatre has 47 Roses from Peter Sheridan, and that'll be followed by Giz a Shot of Your Bongos, Mister. Great title for any show. The Gate is kicking off with its new production of A Woman of No Importance, with an absolutely star-studded cast of the great Cathy Belton, Avian Garrahy, Stephen Brennan is there, the wonderful Marion O'Dwyer is there, just an amazing lineup. Um, the Mill Theatre has a show called Auditions, Zoe's Auditions, uh, and that's an award-winning show with an amazing creative team behind it, including the wonderful Andy Crook uh, who's in there as movement director that is certainly going to be worth checking out um, Bewley's Cafe Theatre has The Candidate by Gina Moxley which I caught there the other week which was just amazing that's starring Francis Healy whom I love with all my heart um, and that'll be followed by Pocket Music with the great Dunica O'Dea and Camille Ross that of course um, was part of the show in a bag project from a couple of years ago so it's written by Gavin Costick as his fight night um, and uh, music there is from Dennis Clossy so a wonderful team on that that's going into Bewley's next The Dubliners Dilemma is continuing Continuing at the New City Arts on Bachelor's Walk. 
Smock Alley's production of Playboy the Western World is going on there. The new theatre has Griswold with the great Shane Gately, and of course that's backed by popular demand at the moment. That'll be followed by Overtime with the wonderful Stuart Roach, which I'm looking forward to getting in to see. And of course the Abbey Theatre is about to kick off with Plough in the Stars with the great Keith Hanna, who you'll remember from the podcast uh, a while back. And also just a, a stunning lineup of actors in there. The amazing Kate Brennan is in there. The lovely Roxana Nicliam is there. Lawrence Kinlan, a whole gang of great people there. That's certainly going to be worth checking out. Such a great Sean O'Casey play and a piece that's very close to my heart. Um, then as we move around the country of course we go to Kilkenny for the great Devious Theatre because their enormous production of Night of the Living Dead is just about to kick off. I have my tickets booked I am there on opening night and I can't wait to get down next week. Uh, don't forget Kilkenny is really only an hour and 15 from Dublin so if you're tempted to go down make the trip it's certainly going to be worth it. Um, as we go further south down to Cork the girl who forgot to sing badly is at the Everyman and then Oleana is at the Cork Arts Theatre the Galway Arts Festival is continuing, strangely enough, in Galway. Um, a load of different shows there, including the massive Druid Murphy thing. That's at galwayartsfestival.com for all your information for that. And as we head north to Belfast to the Lyric Theatre, Molly Wobbly's Tit Factory. I'm going to have to get up and check that out. That just sounds like too crazy not to go and see. Um, so that is us. That is your lineup of what is going on. And that is episode 37 in the books. We will, of course, be back next week for another chat with one of Ireland's leading theatre makers. This has been the Rise Productions Irish Theatre Podcast. For Angus Og McAnally, I'm Angus Og McAnally. We'll see you next week. <laughs> <laughs>